Welcome to the Operation Gritbox podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jack, and for the last 11 years of my life, I've been obsessed with what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. I started this podcast for two reasons. One, I want you to join me on this mission, on this journey, as I interview top athletes, coaches, military personnel, fighters, and human performance experts to learn their stories on what they've accomplished and what they are working on now. And two, I started this podcast for a selfish reason. I volunteer as the director of human performance for a football team in deep East Oakland. And I want to listen to these guests really closely on what they say in their words of wisdom. And I want to apply it and share it with my student athletes so they can maximize their performance on the field and end goal in life. So I hope you join me on this journey, on this mission. And do me a favor. If you find this podcast at all entertaining, educational, and or helpful, hopefully all three, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that gets more ears to the show, and that means more people helping my athletes in deep East Oakland. Appreciate you. What's up, guys? Coach Jack here. Really excited to bring you Bill Burgos on the Operation Grit Box podcast show today. For the last five years, Bill Burgos has been the head strength and conditioning coach for the Orlando Magic, used to be the head strength and conditioning coach for the New York Knicks, spent 13 years in the United States military, Army and Air Force, and the man has an absolute amazing story about how he got from where he was as a young teenage father to where he is now, and really excited to bring it to you. This is the first time he has ever shared it. He talks about this amazing conversation that he had that kind of set him on his path from where he was in high school. And then amazingly, how he had that same conversation with a young man 20 years later, which set that young man on his path. And I'm just really excited to bring it to you. Takes a little while for us to get going, but you could tell that the man is really on top of what he, what he does. Great human being, great at his craft. And I am really excited to bring you today, Bill Burgos. It's a little of everything. So like uh, whether it's a technology company or uh, an agent just trying to like, you know, improve their programming for their players or a player calling me for advice. Uh, So it's a mix of everything. And uh, because of what I've throughout my 10 years in the NBA, what I've learned was, uh, you know, how to use technology in this space or how to like get guys prepared for certain workouts and combines and and so uh, I just, and you know, there's a lot of technology companies that are building all these wearable devices and things that I've used, and they're trying to figure out how do they use it in pro sports, so I help out with those aspects. And then um, since I'm a veteran, I try to do things with the military too as well. And then how big of a believer are you in terms of the wearable devices and all that? You know, I believe in it. The only thing, the problem I, I think was coming across is people are not using the information the right way or not using the information at all. And so, and sometimes like these technology companies, they make it so complicated that a practitioner would take, spend most of his time interpret the data versus coaching. I mean, I was just on the phone just a few days ago with the G, an assistant GM who's responsible for the whole sports med staff. And that's what he told his strength coach. He said, I want you to do less of, you know, collecting data and focus more on coaching. Because, you know, you only can be one of, you can't be both, you know. And I understand part of being a coach, you collect information, but it has to make sense of what the program's about. And sometimes I feel like people spend so much looking at data, they get paralyzed and forget about coaching. And so, you know, one of my goals with these technology companies is to help simplify it, to make the strength coaches, you know, the sports scientists, the director, whoever it is, their job's easier and really focusing on building the rapport with these athletes because that's where you that's where you need that trust. That's where it all starts. And if you don't have that kind of relationship, I think the program would just won't matter. Because at the end of the day, it's 50-50 relationship, meaning the practitioner gives the program and the athlete has to execute. Yeah, I agree. And it's something that I'm still trying to struggle with and find a balance in terms of using technology to help me and my players and even my sons, you know, use what's available to use it as a tool to to help them maximize their potential. But at the same time, you know, it can be a distraction, you know, with, mm-hmm. with so it's uh, using technology and, and finding the balance between that and, and digital minimalism is something that I think is intriguing moving forward. And like in the performance industry, I think that is not, is something that's going to become more 
prevalent moving forward in terms of like how much time people spend on their phones and how much time guys are spending, you know, distracting and getting away from the actual task at hand. And it's just, I think it's really interesting. I think as long as uh, technology company or engineers don't have people like us in their like uh, staff or part of their, you know, their group, then I think that would continue to be a problem. But once they start getting like true feedback from strength coaches, people that are really using it, and then they're really making the change, I think we would see a difference. But it's going to take some time because there's always, I feel like there's always something new every day. That's right. Tell me a little bit about your origin story, superhero story. Where did you grow up and a little bit what that was like? <laughs> so um, my dad was in the Army. I was born in Germany, and uh, we moved around a lot. And so I lived in um, Colorado. I lived in uh, mostly the Northeast, Massachusetts, uh, Maryland type. And then when my dad retired, we moved to Florida. And so I moved to Florida in 1992. And then uh, I've been in Florida ever since, except when I joined the military. And then I, I left. I joined the military for 13 years. And so I was in and out. And uh, most of that time was spent in Tennessee while I was at Fort Campbell. And um, that's where I went to, to school and stuff at. And I'm really interested in terms of growing up on, on military bases, does that culture in terms of discipline and performance and, you know, really trying to be the best you can be, how much of that is directly taught and instructed to, to kids of military families? And then how much of that is just you see around you? Or is that something that you guys are, it, you're just growing up and, it, and it's separate? I think it's, uh, you know, since my dad was in the military, whatever he learned, he instilled that discipline in me. I mean, that's what I experienced and some of my friends as well. So we learned about being on time <laughs> and like paying attention to small things in life, paying attention to detail. And, um, and so it wasn't until like when my dad retired, when I moved down to Florida and I started meeting people that wasn't in the military per se. It was my first time where I wasn't in the military community. So it was a little bit different. And I felt like a lot more people that were uh, irresponsible. And so I got to see the difference between, uh, you know, the upbringing that I came up from, you know, my, my dad being in the military to other parents that weren't. And then what role did your dad have in the United States military? So my dad, he was, when he first started in the army, he was infantry. And then, uh, then he was uh, a medic. Uh, the rest of the time, he was stationed at Walter Reed, Fort Meade, and we spent some time in Korea and as well as in Germany. But he was uh, he was a, a platoon sergeant, so he ran a, a unit, and so he had a lot of people under him. You know, he had to be very firm with them, and I felt he get, the way he treated them, he treated me the same, but a little bit more love. And then how were you able to see how he treated his unit? I mean, when I used to go visit him, you know, he had a lot of young soldiers, and they respected him very well. I mean, they respected him a lot, you know, basically not just because of his uh, his rank, but like most of those guys, because um, my dad also, um, he was a coach during his off time, and a lot of those guys volunteered with my dad. So it kind of like showed me like he was, uh, you know, it's a good leader. Like he wasn't like all about just what's going on at work, but like there are things he w they did outside and they went in and partake, you know, they took the time to spend that time with my dad, and which was cool because like he was their leader and it kind of showed that, you know, they respected him. And then you said they respected him a lot beyond his, his rank because of the additional time he spent as a coach. And then what characteristics yeah, so they, and they skills used to come to the house. Um, I remember they used to come to the house just to have some, you know, just spend some time with my dad and, you know, watch sports and stuff like that. And uh, and even though they knew my dad was the leader. And so the same thing when we played football, they were assistant coaches. They helped out or they came and watched the game just to support my dad. But at the same time, you know, whenever, you know, a mission had to be completed, they knew the job had to get done. And my dad was in charge of that. And number one skill or characteristic you think your dad demonstrated as a leader or coach that, that made him really good in, in that area? I think uh, the one thing that my dad, like uh, people respected, was he was um, he was consistent and he did what he said, and so uh, he followed through on things, and so I think that built a lot of trust, and that's why a lot of people, you know, basically looked up to him and you know and supported him a lot of his things that he was um, participating in. So I think being consistent and following through on the things that he he said. Yeah, there's an author, a guy named John Kuz. I think it's Kuzas. It's K-O-U-Z-A-S. But he wrote this book called The Leadership Challenge, where he researched like it was some crazy quantitative number on on how many people he looked at in terms of what made a good leader in terms of this was in a professional workforce and what he found hands down number one the number one characteristic that these quarter million people or whatever that took part in this in this study that made a good leader they said the person did what they said they were going to do yeah i mean i think that's the big i mean with the uh the assistance that i have i mean i always i feel like i 
had to. Like, I, I feel obligated. If I said I was going to do it, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to follow through on it. And I, uh, and I think uh, I was able to de- uh, develop a great relationship with all my assistants and my peers because of those things. And some of those things, I, I just do it out of instinct. And I think, that, and you're right, I think I seek those things from a leader too as well. And then you get to Florida 1992. What was the, the reason for that? And then how old, kind of age range, where were you there? What part of life? And uh, what happened from there? So my dad retired from the army. We moved to Florida in 92 because his friends were out there. And they, listen, his cost of living is cheap. You could buy a house cheap. So he moved out there. And when I moved out there, I met my wife. So it wasn't like a year or so later when I asked my father-in-law if I could you know, marry his daughter. First thing he said to me was, uh, I'll let you marry my daughter if you can take care of my responsibilities. So I was working at a fast food restaurant. So I ended up joining the Air Force. And then from there, I joined the Air Force in 94, and I was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base in Fort Long Beach, Florida. And then, um, and then from there, I bounced around to Homestead and things like that, and I, I got married in 95. But that's one of the reasons why I went to Florida was because my dad retired there, and then I ended up meeting my wife, and her family was from there. They moved from the Bronx, and so we went, then we just ended up, you know, because our family was there, we just ended up staying there or coming back. And you were pretty young when you married your wife, and you guys had your first daughter, correct? Yeah, so I have four kids. My oldest is from when I was in high school. So I was 16 going on 17 when I had a child. And then when I met my wife, I already had, my daughter wasn't even a year old when I met my wife. My daughter was born in 91. I met my wife in 92 when we moved to Florida. And then uh, when we got married, I was 20 going on 21 and my wife was 19 going on 20. And uh, so we were young. It was, you know, we were in love. It was one of those things. And then not even a year after we got married, um, I ended up having a, a daughter, Cynthia, 96, and then uh, I ended up getting out the Air Force so I could go to college where I ended up working at as a ramp agent. I was the guy who put bags on a plane or the guy who parked the plane, put bags on a plane. That was me. I, I worked for AirTran at Orlando International Airport and then they laid us all off. And so I ended up uh, going back to the Air Force Reserves. And then um, when I went for training and came back, then my wife and my wife and I ended up having um, twins. And so that was like, I was already spending a lot of money on daycare for my one daughter. So then I went from the Air Force Reserves. I tried to go back active duty Air Force, which they wouldn't let me at the time, you know, because I was private service. So the Army got me in and uh, I ended up joining the Army. Now my wife and our three kids, my other daughter, she was living with my parents at the time. And, and then when I joined the Army, I ended up um, getting deployed. I went to uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. So during my three years in the army, I didn't see my family for two and a half years. And then I remember when I got to Afghanistan, that was 10 months. And then I, the day I got back from Afghanistan, they said that I was going to Iraq. So three months later, I'm in Iraq. So my first four months in Iraq, I did not, I wasn't able to talk to my family because we were like, it was, we were on the go, we were moving. There wasn't like a way to call our family. It wasn't until four months later, I was able to contact my family and speak to them. I want to talk about your duties overseas, but real quick. So what did it feel like to have that uh, first child at 16, 17? How did that come about? And then, you know, most high schoolers don't have the the skill capability to really be able to dial in and and handle that really well. Um, How did that feel like for you? And and what was that situation like? Well, when I found out she was pregnant, I thought it was the end of the world. I remember going to like some church. I forgot. I just stopped at a local church and they were having some type of service. I asked them to pray for me and they prayed. and, And then from there... I mean, I was working part-time, so I was saving money. I was working on the weekends at a place called um, Hardy's, saving money, doing what I can. But what really helped out was my parents. Um, my daughter was sick at a very young age, so my dad was able to adopt her and, you know, for medical benefits and things like that, and, and they helped out. I think if my parents didn't help out at that point, I think I would have been out of school because um, it was just... It was really, um, it was going to be expensive for my daughter at that time. And so um, without my parents' help, I think uh, I wouldn't be able to do it. And if I can ask, what was your, what was the illness that your daughter had? I mean, she was just in and out. She had like this, like a little tumor on her, um, by her eye. And um, so she was getting sick. And I think it was because of that little tumor that she had around her eye. And so uh, she was going in and out with the fevers. I don't remember everything. I mean, I was pretty young and, you know, I was... I didn't know what to think of, but uh, but I do remember that because of that the little tumor she had. Her, she had that for a little while, and then they took it out, and then she's been good ever since. And then you joined the military from there. Was that mostly based on your future wife's dad, that conversation that you guys had? 
was like, hey. If- yeah, is, you're exactly right. I mean, because of my father-in-law, you know, he kind of put that on me. Uh, and I had really had nothing at the time. And I did, all, the only thing I did know was the military because of my parents. And uh, I think it was the best thing I ever did. Great foundation, not for my family, but for my career. It made me a better person. Met a lot of good friends uh, and, and, and a lot of opportunities because of it. And I think if he would have never said that, I probably—I don't know—I probably would have got a different job. Or, but, uh, but that kind of encouraged me. And I, you know, I wanted to—I really wanted to support my wife. I wanted to make my father-in-law proud, and uh, and it worked out. And then a lot of guys I coach—they don't have a father figure in their life, and a, a number of them—they whether it's subconsciously or, or indirectly—but they they want to have kids at a young age because whatever reason and maybe because they didn't they didn't have that growing up but what would you say to a, a 16 or 17 year old who if you ask him you know what you want to do what you want to accomplish he says i want to be a dad i want to be a dad at 17 what would you say to them i mean the first thing i would say is basically you got to get yourself in order you got to make sure you got to be able to take care of the responsibilities they probably thinking they can at the time but you know i would like i would share my experiences with them you know in terms of health care and things like that because there's a lot of things that you know if you want to be a good dad you want to make sure that your kid is able to succeed the only way that your kid can succeed if you succeed so if you take care of yourself in terms of being a man and providing good opportunity in terms of education and things like that then you could be a better father but if you want to be a if you don't want to be a good dad those are things that um you don't do but these are things you have to do if you want to be a great dad thank you for that i'd love to hear a little bit about your 10 months in Afghanistan. So for some reason, I am very fascinated with the country of Afghanistan, the war that we've done over there. And uh, actually, my dad and I were even planning to visit up until about six months ago when uh, one of the, the tourist hotels in Kabul was was bombed. But so when you were in the army, what was your role in Afghanistan? And can you talk a little bit about what it was like over there? So, so just so you know, so when I joined the army, I told the recruiter that I wanted a job. I just wanted to go to school. And the reason why was because in the Air Force, my first uh, six years in the Air Force, I was a cop and I was a medic. So I worked, you know, all the time. So I ended up getting a job as a petroleum specialist. I was a fueler in the Army. At the time, it was known as a 77 Foxtrot. I don't know what it is now. I know it's changed. But uh, I was a fueler. So basically what I did was, you know, I fueled aircrafts, tanks, anything in the military required fuel. But I also built fuel farms, meaning bags like almost the size of a football field and over six feet tall. And we fill those things with, with fuel. And we have bags that are the size of a basketball court. And what we would do is like when I went to Bagram, uh, we would set up these fuel farms, uh, the whole piping system, fuel pumps, and we'll set it out to the airline, so, and where the, uh, to the flight line. So when any air that lands, Chinooks, Blackhawks, Apaches, anything, we would uh, fuel them up. So anyway, so I joined the Army, became a petroleum specialist. And when I went to Bagram, I was there for, I was in Bagram for about maybe two, three months, I believe. And during that time there, I, I did go to Kabul because I was on a mission to go to Kabul to get this like uh, pipe fitting because we were getting our fuel trucks, Pakistan, and there were the gypsy trucks. And so when that, by the time we get our fitting didn't fit, so we had to get one made. And then uh, the rest of the time I spent in, uh, in a place called Organi. And I was on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And at the time it was a small forward operating base I think it was about 35 of us at the time. We had tents that made us look like there was hundreds of people there, but it was really only 35 of us. But um, now it's probably like, I think there's thousands of people there now, but in the beginning it's different. But uh, I was a little intim- scared at first, but uh, you know, you get used to you get used to it after a while and it just becomes part of life. And then real quick, that just sounded like a very interesting picture. So it was football field sized. This was fuel, and these were these were tankers, or these were bags, or these were shipping containers. Bags, bags, fuel bags, bags. So it's like a, it's like a rubber, like a rubber bag. I think of like a. Uh, I'm trying to think of like a bag, but like uh, just think of uh, airbeds. Uh, you know, just think of you know things. Just a rubber bag, and it's like almost the shape of a football field or uh, of a basketball court. Hmm. That was the size of one bag. Yeah, one. So we would fill up like maybe maybe six to eight of them, and we would just constantly fill these up with um, fuel. That's crazy. Smaller bags. Uh, we would have smaller bags where um, you know for smaller bases. Like when I was at the operating base, we had a smaller bag. It just depends on the mission. Yeah, in my understanding of the the war on terror in Afghanistan, the the closer you were to Pakistan, the more violent and a higher chance of activity because of, you know al-qaeda and taliban fighters they could just hop over the border and they'd be they'd be safe 
but also in my understanding in 2003 most of the focus was in Iraq so being at a forward operating base where did you have got were you guys uh, engaged in battle or what was going on there I mean I was in I was there in 2002 okay in Afghanistan and then Iraq in 2003. So Iraq didn't happen yet until 2003 for us, for me. And uh, I was there when it initially started when we crossed the burn. But uh, in Afghanistan, we had a couple times where, like, uh, we were attacked. We had, like, you know, some rockets. I mean, but it was, like, uh, it wasn't, like, a full-fledged battle or anything like that. It, but it, we, we had, like, a couple attacks here and there unexpectedly. But they... Uh, the special Forces guys were able to snip it quick. And then in your opinion, what are the top components of a high-performing team in the military? Are we referring to Special Forces units or? Let's start with, how about your logistics unit? What made that run well? I think the people, you know, uh, when we were in uh, Oregonee, we had uh, Corporal Sarvis. He was, uh, he joined, uh, the interesting story about him, the reason why he joined was because his buddy had passed, you know, was in the towers when he uh, when that happened. So he died from there, and so he joined the military because of that. And um, there was actually a uh, we were on a uh, a reality show called Profiles from Frontline. It was actually about, but we're, we're in there together. And so his leadership was like amazing. Him and uh, Sergeant Galarza, and so these guys were able to like, regardless of the situation, we were able to like uh, do things in a, in a calm manner. And then plus, it was, they were fun to be around, and and so I mean, I respected their leadership, and so it made things easier. And a couple things that made them really good leaders is you say they they were calm no matter the situation. Yeah, so there was times where we had. I remember one time <laughs> we were like, um, so we were doing a mission. This you know, a bird came down. We were fueling it, and we noticed everybody's running, and we're not even understanding why. And uh, it was somebody failed to tell us that there was uh, they were about to get hit. I guess somebody had gave a, an Afghani had gave a tip that we were about to be attacked. And so we noticed everybody running. And so our what's call it our leader came up to us, Corporal Sarvis, was like, "Hey, listen, this is what's going on." You know, he said in a way we went over there, we didn't panic. And I mean, that was just one of many. But I just felt like every situation we had, it was always it was never blown out of proportion. You know, there was a solution to everything. And so uh, I felt comfortable. And what was your most memorable moment from your time in the military? My most memorable moment was in Afghanistan where we were showing kids how to play baseball. And uh, I actually painted a mural that ended up in Life magazine, which I didn't know until 10 years later. I saw it online and uh, painted, and so just to be a part of that and of that community and then leaving a mark, I thought it was one of my most memorable moments in the military. And then Afghanistan has been a warrior culture for thousands of years. Was there any kind of sense in the air when you touched down there on, on this place is a little bit different? I want to say, you know, I didn't know what to think, to be honest with you. When I first got there, it, they kind of prepared us for it. So that, like before you deploy, you got to watch all these videos and they give you all these things about the culture and what to expect, what not to expect. And this is going on for like months as while you're training. And so when I got there, it's kind of like expected, you know, what to see in a thing, in a sense. And so, no, I, I mean, I mean, I don't know how else to answer that question, but I felt like I was already prepared by the time I got there. You were training ready. It sounds like you're ready to go. That's, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, yeah, that, which was good because it's like by the time I got there, I wasn't really like alarmed. And then how did you find out that your mural, how did you find it in Life Magazine 10 years later? So what happened was I was just, we were talking about Afghanistan and um, I just, I was talking to a friend of mine. So I said, you know, I went to Google, I just Google Oregon E baseball and uh, all these pictures came up because I wanted to show, I knew there was a photographer there because I remember that in August of 2002, there was a photographer there when I was there. And, uh, but of course we never seen the photos. So I just um, assumed that he it was online. So I went in and Googled and uh, this is because I was in the NBA. I was just talking to a player and I was just wanted to show him what it was like. And then my mural shows up and then I see the stamp life. And so I was like, wow. So I uh, went on there and then it was on Getty Images. So then I contact Getty Images, the people that, you know, that, that took the photo. And I asked if I could get a copy. He told me I had to pay. And I was like, what? I was like, huh. I paint. <laughs> so luckily the NBA was able, was kind enough because they have an account and they were able to get it for me. And they got me up. It's right now hanging in my um, And what made you decide? So you got your college degree when you were in the military, correct? Uh, half and half, yes. And then what made you decide to leave the military and take kind of a professional pivot and get into the strength and conditioning realm? So I always wanted to get into like uh, sports medicine. I just didn't know what, you know, I didn't know what was out there. And so um, by the time I joined the army, I learned about athletic training. The problem was 
at Austin Peay State University, they didn't have like an athletic training program and they stopped doing internships before uh, at 2004. So it was too late for me. By the time I came back from Iraq, it was too late for me to do athletic training. So I was taking classes while I was in the Army, taking advantage of the uh, tuition assistant, the 100% tuition and um, the reimbursement, the whole nine. And so when I got out, uh, I couldn't do athletic training. So then I started learning about strength and conditioning online. I found you know, the internet was a little different back, back then. So I just typed in like sports training and strength conditioning coach came up, but it was, uh, it wasn't the NSCA, it was a CSCCA that came up. And so that's all I knew about at the time. And so then, um, when, so I'm going to school, you know, I was taking all prerequisites. And then when I got out military, uh, I started learning more about strength and conditioning. So I started more exercise science. However, the reason why I got out was because we were deploying. And since I've already deployed and I already did a lot of things, I wasn't in the part of the stop loss. So I was able to get out and I've already missed my family for years I didn't want to leave again for another year so I went ahead and got out and then I just basically uh, lived off my savings unemployment didn't have medical insurance uh, so we went to the health department for our kids and stuff and then I ended up um, working as a student athletic trainer under the president well the former president of the National Athletic Training Association so working under his leadership uh, he helped me out you know he considered me a hard worker so he gave me some scholarships and stuff which helped out along with my GI Bill it wasn't until uh, this one athletic trainer came and he told me how he, he was also CSCS certified, but I didn't know what it was. So he, you know, he told me a little bit more information about it. So I did research. And then um, as I was an athletic trainer, I kind of realized that it wasn't for me. Don't get me wrong, athletic training is a good profession. I just didn't feel like excited. Like I like to be in the weight room. I like to work out. I like to motivate guys. And those kind of things I did in the military, like I helped guys work out, but I didn't really know what strength conditioning was until I met this guy. And then I started learning more about it. And then uh, it wasn't until I was getting ready to graduate with my bachelor's, Chuck, guy that I was working for, asked me if I wanted to do an internship in the NFL as an athletic trainer. However, this one guy, his name is Ed Wall, an alumni from our school. He had his own like sports performance center and uh, in Orlando. <laughs> so he offered me a paid internship. And so that was, a, that was an opportunity for me to go back home with my family. And whereas the NFL thing, I, I wasn't really going to pursue athletic training, so I kind of turned that down. Got into the uh, sports performance internship, started really liking it, learning more about it. And then from there, you know, I started doing my masters. And, and then how did you get into professional sports? Baseball, correct? Yeah, so what happened was, uh, so I went back after my internship and uh, what happened there? So I got granted a GA position at, at the university at Austin Peay, but there wasn't really no strength conditioning. So they let me work, help out in the weight room with some of the team. There wasn't like no traditional strength program there, but they knew I wanted to be a strength coach. But my primary duty was to teach. I was a weight training instructor, instructor. I helped out the professors and I was a GA. And then after a year as a GA and doing all that, I didn't have a job. So the day I graduated my master's, the, the HHP department, the health and human performance department asked me if I wanted to be an adjunct which I took. So I started teaching, weight training, things like that, all around strength and conditioning. And while I'm doing that, you know, I'm a substitute teacher at a high school, delivering papers still. You know, I still needed to make some, some money. And uh, my professor, Dr. Steinberg, walked in one day. He just did a video with some baseball guys, some MLB strength coaches. And he came in and said, hey, you know, you should, you should be a baseball strength coach. You know, you're bilingual. I think you'll, you'll blend in well. You should go ahead and apply. So that Friday, I applied for every team you could think of. And by Monday, I got a lot of callbacks. And the one team actually I didn't apply for was the, was the Pirates. What happened was I applied for the Rays. The Rays didn't need anyone that was bilingual. The Pirates did. So the, I guess the strength conditioning coordinators from the Pirates and the Rays, they know each other very well. So they basically switch resumes. Pirates called me and offered me a full, offered me a, an opportunity, basically a contract for the whole year and uh, with benefits, and um, which I accepted. But the pay was like 18000 for the year. And so it was a big pay cut for me, but I saw an opportunity. So my wife, um, she was cool because she was being, she was a nurse. But then what happened was once I accepted that job, she lost her job and I already left my job. So we were stuck. And so... Um, she, we ended up losing a lot of money. I started digging into my retirement. And then finally, you know, we started making money again because she, she was able to find another job. It took a little time. But by that time, I was uh, going into my second year with the Pirates. 
and uh, they gave me a raise. I ended up getting 24000 But then that year, I met the strength coach from the Orlando Magic, Joe Brigowski, who's now the director of science and research for the NBA Players Association. So I met with him. It took me a month or so. I emailed him. Uh, it was a little different. Like Magic didn't really have a traditional website like now, and, and I, Google was there. So I, I ended up typing uh, Joe Rogowski contact info. So he ended up doing an intern, I mean, an interview with uh, his his school at DePaul in Chicago, and they had his information on there. So I ended up taking his information, emailed him several times to the point where he finally said, "All right, come down, you can meet me." And uh, within that week, you know, we were I was driving back and forth for an hour and a half there, an hour and a half back until he finally offered me an internship. And the internship was paying 750 bucks a month, which I took because I was like, you know, hey, it's the NBA, this is my only chance. So I took it, another pay cut. And, uh, but this time I was still driving, you know, a total of three hours a day back and forth, uh, spent a lot of money on gas. And then, uh, but I met a lot of people. I uh, worked with Stan Van Gundy and all these guys. And then uh, after my first year, I interviewed with the team Timberwolves for a head position, which didn't really work out. So I ended up coming back to the Magic as a uh, an assistant when they took away the internship, offered me more money. This is my first time really money. And then after that year or so, after the lock the lockout, I ended up um, interviewing for the Knicks, Wolves, Bobcats at the time, the Timberwolves. Navy SEALs, Fifth Special Forces Group, and I also applied to be the fitness director for Homeland Security. And then I took the job with the Knicks. And then that was the beginning of my head coach position in the NBA. And then there was a lot of good stuff there. In terms of going back to your, when you applied for the baseball position, you didn't have that much experience in the industry. And it sounds like this has just kind of been a common theme with you, but obviously you do some things very well in terms of how you present and package yourself. What did you do to think that when the the Rays guy got your resume, he pat, he must have said something to the to the Pirates HR GM and said, "Hey, you got to take a look at this guy." What were you doing to present yourself that was like, "Okay, this guy, even though this guy doesn't have that much experience, he's someone that we definitely want to be a part of our organization." So the one thing I did do was um, I know being bilingual helped me out, but the other thing was um, I looked at all the, everyone's um, bio. Like, I read everybody's bio, Chris Dunaway, all those guys, Chung, all those guys. And I was looking at, you know, what were they doing in terms of to get themselves to that point? You know, like a lot of these bios talks about their education, you know, things like that. And so then I looked at, a lot, of course, a lot of the job qualifications and stuff. And so I put my resume, I tailored my resume to meet those needs. And so, and I think that was the one thing that helped me stand out. Because I look at a lot of resumes now, and some of them don't, like, it doesn't come close to what I'm looking for or anything like that. And uh, I think the answers are right there. I think all you got to do is look at the job qualification, make sure your resume is tailored to that, you know, give yourself a little niche. I think my niche was bilingual uh, and it, plus my military background. So they looked at, you know, me being disciplined and, and uh, plus I was working with a young group of guys. And so they needed uh, discipline in terms instilled into these groups. The, when I mean the athletes and uh, I think that helped me out. And so, um, so yeah, and then plus, you know, the reason why I got my master's is because almost everybody in the industry had their master's. And so uh, that was one of the reasons why I got it in the first place. Going back to what your dad taught you in terms of having a strong, paying attention to detail. Sounds like that helped you get that. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just instilled. He did a good job then. And then I would love to get your your expertise on the high school athletes that I'm coaching. Again, a lot of them don't have father figures in their lives. So myself and the other members of the coaching staff, we're really the only male influence that these guys have in their life in terms of, and we're trying to create this discipline culture. And there's a lot of static on that. There's a lot of fight back on that from the athletes and the honorable young gentlemen themselves. And I'm wondering what were some of the things that you did to show discipline to, I guess, starting with the baseball guys and uh, when you got into the NBA? I think, I think my experience, sharing my experiences, you know, I've been in those shoes. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I have, I have a father, but like I, I had a lot of friends. I've been in neighborhoods where like I've known people that don't have fathers and I share my experiences and, you know, relationships I have with people that, that have those type of experiences and what happened to them and, um, and how I'm here to help. And those are the things, I mean, I, I like right now, like uh, I'm a part of a youth group at this church and um, we have some students that, you know, they don't have great relationships with their fathers. 
my daughter's fiance, for example, doesn't have a, he didn't really grow up with a father figure. And so what happened here, so he joined the Air Force um, because of the story I share with them. And, and I told him, you know, take care of my daughter's responsibility, so on and so forth. So now he's in the Air Force in Italy and he's loving it. And he's sharing his experiences with his friends who has kind of like the same experiences and they're seeing how he's succeeding. And I think sometimes, you know, we're certain kids, they got to see to believe. You know, I was one of those guys too. Like I didn't want to hear it. You know, but then when I see someone close to me experiencing success, then like I want to live those moments as well. And I try to share those things. You know, I try to find things that I'm able to connect with and then and then use that as, as a lever in terms of trying to build that relationship. That's amazing. So you you gave the same piece of mentoring advice to your daughter's fiance that your wife's dad gave to you. Yeah, I did. And uh, and he actually I didn't tell him to join the Air Force. I mean, he just did it. I was like, wow, he's in Italy. <laughs> yeah, he did. I mean, because he was he really. You know, he didn't have money for school. He really had no uh, no type of experience. And I mean, he's a great kid, just needed that, that push. And he's so happy that he joined the military. And I, we still talk. And to give you another example, there's this kid, uh, his name is Jake. So Jake was a ball boy with the Magic. So I've known him for quite some time. And I know his mom very well. His mom actually gave me my first contract in the NBA that I signed. And um, he wanted to be a strength coach. He came to me and and I basically started mentoring him and we started talking and, and then uh, I was able, my university is always asking me for anybody that I know that's interested in becoming the GA. And for me, it's like, you got to be a real good kid and you got to really want it because what I don't want is some kid to go in there and fail and then messes up opportunities for other people. So this kid was really good. So I was able to get him a, a GA position at my, at my school and they brought him in and he graduated with high honors got his CSCS certification and just got his internship at, uh, with Impact Basketball in Tampa. And he's excited. And his mom is excited. And uh, he didn't really have a, yeah, he has a father, but he didn't really grow up with him. And so his mom uh, thanked me for that. But, it, but, but my biggest thing is he was, I just, I like to help and uh, I want to see kids succeed. Sometimes they're just not informed. And I think just giving them the right information at the right time and with a little encouragement, a lot of these kids. And then when you join Orlando, I'd like to get into the, little tactical into the weeds here a little bit. What was, when you went in there, was it in the off season or in season? Off season. Okay. And then what was that kind of training? Did the Magic, did they have a, a team training program or was it individual sessions or, or what did that look like? Oh, when I got there, it was, and it was, it's always been individualized. When I first got there in, uh, two, well, I was there in 2008 and then 2009 was like official, official. And um, it was always individualized. As far as I've been in this profession, like, even though you know, I've been in a lot of team setting, but every program I've, I've encountered was always individualized to tailor that guy's needs. And then who is the group that comes together and decides what that player's needs are? Well, at that time, well, it was always the whole sports medicine and strength staff. Okay. Like everybody, yeah, we will all meet. It's been consistent like that the whole time where the, the sports med staff would basically say, we don't, the guy can't do this, can't do that. And then we would just basically take that into consideration, of course, and then we'll just focus on other things that would to keep the guy conditioned the whole time. And then in season, how much training is going on for most NBA players? I mean, your young guys, man, uh, four to five times out the week. And whereas these are guys, well, I don't want to say young, it's a little bit different now. The guys that don't play a lot of minutes, they would train with me more. Whereas the guys that play high minutes, we still train, but it's like once, it's like once or twice. We will still meet twice a week. I take that back. We would be together always prior to the game and post game. Every guy's different, whether it's stretch, whatever that guy needs. And then we would actually do a strength session at least twice a week. And then, um, and then you know, the guys. It depends on the guys' minutes. But I mean, you always have someone in the weight room. But the guys that don't play a lot of minutes, they're with me all the time. Whether it's conditioning, some type of skill work lifting all the time and then i'd love to get your your take we're football in season right now where we want to keep getting the players stronger while at the same time we want them optimized for for game day would you what would your take be in terms of how we go about training and programming to still get them stronger while at the same time reducing soreness on the day of the game well, I mean, it would have to be nutrition and recovery protocols. That would be my first, I guess, guess on this. It's not guess, but the first thing I would do is basically focus on the recovery protocols and nutrition. Like, are they eating the right things? And at the right time, you know, after their session, are they doing the recovery? Are they warming up properly? And are they recovering properly? And so those are the things I would attack. In order to prepare for game day, what is the movement prep sessions going on prior to the activity to get that blood flowing? 
you know? And then the other thing I would think about, if they're sore, sore, then I would look at, like, I would really start to look at the whole entire program. Are we implementing certain things at the wrong time? Are we, like, are we trying to build them now during the season? Or should they already be at a certain level during the season to minimize soreness, you know? And sometimes, because, like, our guys, they would get sore at times, and sometimes it's, Studies show it could be hydration, you know, not so much just the strength training itself. So I would really question about hydration. Or the other thing is, it's like, all right, are we, did we peak too soon or too late? Or, you know, those are things I would look back at. And then I would just make my adjustments from there. And with minimal resources, what would you look like? What would you look at in terms of recovery? So with minimal resources, and I've been there in baseball. (laughs) And so our weight room was was basically also the laundry room. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in that case, what I would do is, you know, again, I would look at uh, nutrition. Are we drinking, I mean, fluids, you know, are they drinking the right amount of fluids at the right time? Are they eating enough? Um, the other thing is, it's like, you know, just cool down protocol in terms of st- stretches and like looking at just strength training alone. You know, what are some things that we could do differently to minimize soreness? You know, so those are things I would look at. I would just look at the pro. I wouldn't really look at adding anything mm-hmm. in terms of like technology and all that, anything that costs money. I would really look at what things can I change that is free or add, and that's simply the nutrition. I think a lot of people tend to forget about the nutrition component because these kids, especially high school kids, you know, they eat a lot of junk and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, and water's free. Are they drinking enough water? Right? Are they eating enough carbs? The way, what I share with my guys, three, one gram of water, one gram of carbs holds three grams of water. And so are they eating enough carbs, so even though they're staying hydrated, you know, are, you know, in order to stay hydrated, is that balancing out? And the other thing would be is it's like, uh, are they eating the right carbs? And so those are the things I would look at. I would look at things that I could really change, you know, at a lifestyle level before anything else. Thank you for that. And then you spent a couple years with Orlando and you got the the head strength and conditioning gig with the New York Knicks. Could you talk a little bit about walking into that position, new organization, kind of what your goals were and how you kind of navigated coming in and, and building relationships while at the same time, you know, wanting to leave, leave your mark? So when I first joined the Knicks, I thought it was, it was the coolest thing ever. One is, you know, my, my family, my dad was raised in New York. They're all big Knicks fans. So, like, me to be a part of the Knicks organization at that time was awesome. And it meant a lot. So, when I first stepped in, it was the lockout season. I got hired on December 5th. Training camp, training camp started December 10th. So, by the time I got hired on, you know, my thought process is, like, I know they already had something planned. So, I wasn't going to come in and say, this is how we're going to do it. No, I was going to come in and be a part of the organization. And so what I did was I came in. They already had stuff planned. I did the, you know, I did my warm up like I normally would, and uh, and then from there I just started building rapport with my staff as well as the players. And then from and it wasn't until like throughout the season guys started trusting me more. I I really had an old squad, and so and then it got older the, the following year, and so I knew at that time it was just building rapport. I mean, I feel like I didn't really have to prove myself in terms of like being a strength coach because I was there and that's what I got hired for. I just. The only thing I knew I had to do was just make sure that I was able to connect well with everybody in the organization from top down, I, regardless of who you are, whether you're the security guard, the facility guy. I wanted a, a great relationship with each person, which I did. And, uh, and when I left, and the only reason why I left was because, you know, my family was in Florida and um, I wanted to go back home. And, and so it worked out. But. I was able to leave a, you know, a great mark with, with that staff and, and we still connect till this day. And, and so, um, so yeah, that was my whole thing to go in there and build a relationship. And I think that's the biggest thing in any program is being a coach is can you connect well with that player? And then you mentioned the term warm up and, and doing my research for this interview, you talked about how some of the players, they mocked the warm up a little bit, but then you would, you would find them at, at summer camp, kids camps, and they would be doing the same. What did that warm up look like? Or is there somewhere we could find it online? Well, it's not online. <laughs> so basically, the way the way I did it was, you know, whatever time coach gave me. So coach, coach, all the coaches gave me like basically 10, 15 minutes. So I had a, a program for 10 minutes. I had one for 15. I had one for 20. So whatever coach allowed me to have, it would kind of dictate what the warm up would be. So if it's a shorter warm up, I'll encourage guys to come in earlier to do some things. If it's a longer warm-up, the guys come in the normal time, so on and so forth. So everything starts on the ground. 
and then um, it's all movement on the ground. And then as we then we start moving up, we start standing, start moving. Then from there we start getting it. We getting into like uh, actual movement on the floor, and then we get into more activating the nervous system, neuroactivation, and then from there we start getting into more specific basketball drills uh, with or without a ball. And it's always it's gonna always gonna be the same same concept. If it's a longer warm up, then I incorporate the foam rollers, trigger point balls, lacrosse balls, and stuff. If it's a shorter warm up, I have those guys do it beforehand. Now the thing is, is like. I encourage guys to come in early because everyone has their own deficiencies. And so I want them to focus on what their issue is at first. And the idea is, is if they do those things and then they come to the team warm-up, they're somewhat, quote-unquote, in symmetry because they identify their deficiencies and they took care of it. Now it's supposed to activate appropriately. But now they could, you know, be with the team and do these warm-up drills. Now the warm-up drills are basically things that uh, me and the physical therapist or the medical staff, we discuss like what is the most common injuries, what is the most common thing. So there's a lot of ankle stuff, proprioceptive stuff, balance stuff, single leg stuff, glute stuff to get those things firing in the warm-up. And those are things that are global. And, and that's what it's dressing there. Um, but when we uh, when the guys come in before that is, you know, is whatever their needs is. If it's some type of hip work, some type of shoulder, whatever it is, they, they focus on that prior to the actual team warm-up. And then what was the, the protocol or testing, or were you just watching guys play? But how did you guys determine what the deficiencies were for each player? So every team, you know, was a little different. So like when I was with the uh, the Knicks, we had our own protocol in place where they identified deficiencies with our physical therapists. And there are sometimes there's things I would see in terms of our, my screening, but it would be more towards like, it'd be like more athletic movements, meaning like the T drill, whatever like conditioning uh, tests I, I have in place. And then I would notice some things, and so I would film it too. And then uh, we'll put those two together. Because some, you know, that's more of a high threshold setting. Most of those, uh, well, in the past, and some of those things have changed. With our physical therapists, a lot of those tests were, were a low threshold setting. And so some things would act differently. And so we would put those two together and then, you know, basically come up with a plan and add certain things. If it was like 95% of the team experienced the same thing, we would just put in the warm-up. So some guys experienced it, just that one guy had to come in and focus on doing it on their own. But we would do those, like, things almost on a daily basis prior to any activity. And then in season, is there any specific strategies you apply to give players a sense of urgency in terms of your time with them to get them, to help them recover, to to get them more mobile, to reduce their chance of injury? Um, what would you do? Because, you know, they're probably coming in tired. You know, they're playing a lot of games, a lot of nights. What did you do to, to get them excited, get them high intensity and get that sense of day-to-day urgency in season? Well, I mean, we have a talk early on. Uh, so I talk with the guys one-on-one. I mean, I do talk as a group. And then I uh, and I talk one-on-one, you know, asking the guys what their goals are and so on and so forth. And I remind them about those goals and those things that they're trying to accomplish. And then um, sometimes, you know, I understand, you know, they really get themselves beat down. And I know the emotions are in place. So I, I really don't bother them at that point. And if they don't do the, let's say they don't do it that day, that recovery session, because they were so upset, I'll wait till they calm down. And then we talk about it. And then the next time they'll remember and they'll, you know, they'll respect. It's just, it makes no sense when the emotions are involved and then you try to like, all right, now we got to do this. I think you make matters worse. But, uh, but if you approach it in a way where their emotions are not involved as much, they've calmed down and they can really focus in on what you're trying to tell them, then they'll, they'll be more engaged. And that helped out a lot. Uh, I've only had to do that a couple times. Every now and then I'll go in and give a reminder here and there, or I'll say it prior to the game, or I'll say it during shoot-around, and, uh, and it worked. And those guys, you know, they would do simple things. Because I know time is of the essence, so I really have to think about what what makes sense. On the road, it's a little challenging, but at home it's easier. But um, guys were able to respond well. And then what was your most memorable story or time from your time in New York? Uh, Linsanity. <laughs> Interesting. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it happened so fast and uh, seemed like forever. And uh, we were winning games and it was just, I've never seen anybody get so much attention so quickly. And um, because I remember when he first came in to the club, um, he was real quiet, real good, you know, he's a real good dude. And and then, you know, then all of a sudden it just becomes this worldwide phenomenon. And and they got to see a side of Jeremy that's, that's awesome. And I mean, like I said, he's a great kid. And then all of a sudden it just, it stopped. But, uh, but yeah, that was like my most memorable time. I, I felt like forever. I mean, media everywhere. It was like 
it's like we had a beetle of our own. <laughs> and it did. Did anyone in the organization see that coming? No, nobody did. Uh, I don't think anyone. I didn't. Nobody mentioned anything like they saw it coming. I mean, we thought. I remember. You know, we. I think we thought it was gonna be like a couple games, and then it just kept going and going and going. And I think what really hit it was when he hit the game winner in Toronto, when he hit the three. And then uh, we, because I thought I was in the back. I remember I was in the back getting ready for recovery, getting the drinks ready and all that. And we saw it on TV that he hit the three, and we're like, wow. And that really, I forgot what game that was, what number, but I think that really kind of like solidified everything. And then you said it suddenly stopped. Was there anything that stood out to you in terms of how Jeremy went, how he handled it when the when it started, and then how he handled it when it stopped so suddenly? I mean, he was the same. He was a pro about it. Like, you know, he, he knew his position, he knew his role. Like when he was called to, to play those minutes, he did it. And then when he was called to, you know, to sit back down, he, he did it. I mean, like no... Like, no attitude, no nothing. I mean, he was a pro all the way through. And I think that's what, you know, why he's in the league so long and, and everyone likes him, just because he's a, he's a professional. And you went back home to Orlando. You spent an, a number of years there. And what was it like walking into there for the first time compared to when you walked into the, to the Knicks? Well, when I left the Knicks, I had the oldest team in the league. So I had, like, I had Kenyon Martin. I had Rasheed Wallace. Kate, Marcus Camby, Kurt Thomas, Mario Stoudemire, Mello. Man, that I mean, was I, an old team. <laughs> yeah, I had a kid. I had like, you know, I had a like big squad. And then we were second in the East. You know, uh, we went to the playoffs, second round. And then when I come back to Orlando, it was such a young squad that like the, the uh, there wasn't any, um, there was no superstars there. Like there was no all-star. So it was like a big difference. I went from the oldest team to the youngest team. And which was a great group of kids. I mean, they were like, they were eager. They were ready to play. They, you know, they wanted, you know, make themselves, you know, their, their mark in this industry, which was fun because, you know, I was able to uh, work with a group of kids like that as well. But it, you just feel the difference, you know, coming from New York, it's just, New York is the cream of the crop when it comes to basketball for the NBA. I feel, in my opinion, it's just the mecca of basketball. And then to come to Orlando, you know, I was always a fan of Orlando. And, uh, and to come back to the young team, I just, you could feel the difference, but it was awesome to come back. And then did you, in terms of kind of one of your big principles in coaching and, and building the importance of building relationships, did you attack that differently with, with the veterans in New York compared to the young guys in Orlando? No, it is the same. Like people are people. I just find a way to connect with them. Every, like, so in other words, like, uh, Rasheed Wallace was into, uh, like comic books and stuff like that. You know, I, I collect comic books, and so I had a way to connect with him. Marcus Canby loves Air Force Ones. I love Air Force Ones. So it's like we always have, like, each person I had a way to connect with, and I found that as a way to uh, bridge that gap. And with the young guys, you know, I have kids, and so there was things that my kids did, they, they, they did, or they, uh, you know, we had the same belief when it came to uh, Christianity, or we, uh, there was always something you know, and I was able to find that window. And, uh, and that was just through casual conversation. And then from there, we just built a relationship. And then we were able, and I would use that as my way of communicating. And you were with New York for two years in Orlando. That just wrapped up last season. You were there for five or six. Is that correct? Total of eight. Yeah, but it's five in New York. And so my question was, is, you said it was, it was five in New York? No, it was, it was three, two, five. Three, two, five. And my question is just kind of overall in that industry, in the NBA, what is that average or how long are our sports performance guys, how long are they usually with the team? What's the turnover like? Just I'm curious. Well, turnover is usually two to four years. And so uh, I was able to last a long time. <laughs> um, sometimes less. I mean, we just had a big turnover this year with strength coaches. Some of them, you know, what happens is, and, you know, just being as president, what I've learned was uh, a lot of people want to get into this league. And, and sometimes not what expected. The travel, uh, the demands of some of you know what the players are asking for. Sometimes um, the late hours and things like that. So it's a little bit different. And so it, once they get into the league, they start to realize, wow, it's now you know there's a lot of work involved. I mean, even the, the off season, there's a lot going on too. Whether it's visiting guys, camps, you know that these players are having, you're attending, or you're doing pre-draft workouts. There's so many things. The combine. And so, um, you know, so because of that, there's a, you know, lately there's been like a high turnover. And so fortunately I was able to be in the league for, for some time and be one of those rare few guys that was able to last that long. And what was your most memorable experience or story from your uh, time with Orlando? Man, you know, Orlando is 
was my they gave me birth to this league because I, I first started there. I think my most memorable time, and I never told him this, when I first met Patrick Ewing. So Patrick is, you know, a good friend of mine. And um, and I was a big fan of him, you know, before, you know, of course I met him. I mean, I'm still a fan of him, but he came up to me and he's like, hey, what are you doing? I say, nothing right now. He's like, can you stretch me? I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, in my mind, I'm like, wow, this Patrick Ewing. <laughs> but at the end of the day, he's, he's a great guy. He's down to earth, he cares. You know, he'll text me here and there. And so, um, but that was my most memorable moment. I mean, I enjoyed my whole time in Orlando. Real good people down there. Uh, they care. And uh, just got to a position where it was, you know, my time was up. And Ewing, that was when he was finishing up his Hall of Fame careers, when he brief stint in Orlando, was this after? He was a coach with Van Gundy. Okay. So he was an assistant coach and I worked under Van Gundy. He must have a very commanding presence just with his history and size as a coach. Uh, Patrick, yeah, he does. I mean, I went to visit him in Georgetown and um, he's doing great over there. And like, just who he is, you know, so much knowledge, he knows the game. And so, yeah, he gets a lot of respect from people, yeah. And then you had this long run with Orlando and you're on to the next step in, in your journey. What are you doing now and, and why did you decide to go go that route? So now, uh, you know, spending time with family, um, consulting right now, you know, various you know, with agents, uh, companies, whether it's technology, training, whatever it is. Uh, a couple, I'm on some advisory boards for uh, Power Hands, the Weighted Gloves, as well as um, Psalm Sleep, which talks about the benefit of sleep. So I get involved with things that I believe in. And, uh, and my, one of my biggest projects is the military. You know, I want to help improve the way the military does performance. I know just because you have performance doesn't mean it's being done the right way. I want to partner with certain companies to help make that change with technology as well as with performance and, and therapy. And so, um, so yeah, and again, I'm open to any other opportunities there is. Um, I mean, I know I'm not in the NBA, but if an opportunity comes up again, I, I'm open. So you still want to look in the NBA and then uh, real quick, I got two questions here. So the first one, what similarities did you, you said you worked side by side with, with special forces in Afghanistan, you work with some amazing leaders over there, and then probably just even your department. I mean, uh, because of the amount of training and resources that gets invested in them and the just how highly trained they are, special forces groups get a lot of attention, but I'm sure in your logistics division and in infantry, there was, there was a number of top performers. What similarities did you notice in terms of personality and characteristics that they had with top NBA guys in your experience? That's a good question. I mean, to be honest with you, the two different breeds, and the reason why I say that, like special forces, is like, how, how can I put it? It's like in the NBA, you have talent, you know, you, you play a game and, um, you know, you, you entertain and, and most people help and they get involved with the community. The special forces is like a lot of them don't get recognized and they're like a lot of behind the scenes. And, but they're very talented in what they do and they're very skillful, but they really work hard at it just as well as the players. You know, it's just two different worlds. Uh, I really don't see the similarities in any of it. Um, the only thing I see similar is, is the hard work and passion that they put into it. Because, you know, to be a, an NBA player, you know, you have to have the talent and the passion to be one. A special forces guy, you got to have the talent and the passion to be one as well. I mean, in order to be in special forces, you got to really want it and you got to work hard for it. And that's like the same thing in the NBA. And maybe that's the only thing that's similar. But other than that, you know, I think Special Forces guys don't get recognized like most guys should. But sometimes I understand because of clearance and things of that nature. But but I think that uh, there is – that's one of the biggest – I don't know if there's a similarity difference between the two. But um, that's how I'll put it. Yeah, and I never thought about the the entertainment factor as, as being a different. But considering that's a big reason why these uh, professional sports leagues, why they get paid, that's that's a big part. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of – Going back to are, Jeremy Wynn and Win Sanity, going back to that. No, go ahead. I said going back to your story oh, yeah, of Jeremy yeah. Wynn and Win Sanity. Uh, what's your question about that? Oh, I just said when I we just I never thought about the entertainment thing. Oh, okay. how, how much that played a part, and then that made me think of what you when you talked about Jeremy Wynn and Win Sanity, and just how much of a media spectacle that became. Yeah, it was huge, and uh, but it worked out for Jeremy. And then in but, terms uh, of uh, tactical athletes in the military, where do you see performance in that area? Where can that be improved? What what stands out to you? What stands out to me, you have a lot of performance coaches, never really been in the military. Um, and don't get me wrong, it's like, uh, you know, in the beginning, there's some performance coaches that do a great job because by, they get to understand the military throughout some time. It's the same thing in the NBA. I never played a game. I mean, I played basketball, don't get me wrong, but I've never really been in the NBA. 
but I've been in, I've been around the game so long that I understand what's expected. And I think since it's so young in uh, the military that you get a lot of young coaches. And so, and what happens is I think there's some guys getting hurt and, uh, and but there's some guys that, you know, doing very well with it. But I think, you know, if we can minimize young coaches uh, in that position, because I think, I think you need somebody a little bit more uh, experienced and seasoned because you're dealing with special operators. And when they're out in the field, there's no uh, second guessing and there's no like, wait till we do this or wait till you get better. I mean, you, you really got to know your stuff. And I think you need uh, a seasoned strength coach to be a part of that. And I think uh, the young guys should be like in a position where they, they learn more from those seasoned guys. And then as they get better, then they can run a program itself. Shoot, that makes sense because I think of like when you're out in the field, like your nutrition's probably jacked, you're eating MREs, your recovery's probably jacked, you're probably not sleeping. So probably all that really needs to t- be taken into account, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, so you, I just feel like you should have a seasoned guy in that place. And um, whether he's been in the military or not, but just but he knows what he's doing. And, um, and, a lot, and there's a lot of young guys taking these positions. And I understand it's an opportunity, but I think the people in charge should kind of like start focusing more on uh, experience along with qualifications. Love it. And then, Mr. Burgos, a couple kind of overarching questions. Just love to hear from you. Is What drives you? What drives me? You know what? I think, wow, it's a good question. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, the biggest thing that drives me is when people like, uh, how can I put it? Um, I had some a similar question like that before. So like when, when, when my guys or my players or whatever speak the language, you know, that drives me to learn more, to teach more. The biggest thing that basically drives me is to make sure that, I don't know if I'm answering this right or not, but to make sure that everyone's uh, understanding gets the right information. So like, so what drives me is people that are seeking knowledge and they want to learn and I want to help with it, be a part of that. And so um, I think that's what drives me is people that want to learn and learn more and do things the right way and get better. And so uh, I, I want to be a part of that. And whether it's the military or anything like that, I just want to make sure it's done the right way. I think that's a great answer. It's right on. And then I think it's a vital skill that, that you're doing, that you're teaching this, because we live in this world of endless information, right? So the, we all have access to the information. The, the question is, is it the right information and is it the best information? So if you have any question that you could have answered in the performance industry, whether it's you know how to recover faster, how to jump higher, how can guys out in the field, how can they eat better? But if you could have any question answered in the performance industry, what would it be? If I could have any question answered, what, what would it be? Yeah, maybe some kind of question that you're, you've been sitting on lately or just, you know, any question. I think the one question that I would like to have answered is, um, man, well, the one thing that I always ask every, every strength coach or anybody that I work with is what is the purpose behind that program? And I think uh, there's a lot of programs that are in place that has no purpose or no rhyme or reason to it. And I think uh, if anybody can answer that question for me, I think it'll eliminate a lot of risk and a lot of injury. And uh, so that would be my thing. That's so, great. Because that's what's going on now. And then if you absolutely knew 100% that you could not fail now that you know, you're, you're on to your next, you're done with the magic, what is the next major goal you would accomplish in your life? Or impact My next major goal is to create a program with the military that makes sense and that could be spread out through the whole United States military in terms of human performance and create jobs and opportunities for veterans. So uh, in strength and conditioning. And so um, that's, that's my passion project along with other things. But my biggest thing is to provide opportunities for the military, make sure things are done the right way. And, and provide jobs for um, veterans and strength conditioning. That sounds great. It sounds like something you're definitely uniquely qualified for. Okay, I have, I have some rapid fire questions here to end up. So please, uh, courtesy me and answer in one word, a uh, couple words or one sentence, okay? Okay. Most interesting person you have ever met in your life? Amari Stoudemire. Person you look up to in the sports performance industry? Stan Van Gundy. Number one book you have read in the sports performance industry? Oh, in the sports performance industry. Shucks. I mean, it's not in the sports performance industry, but it's The Invisible Gorilla. That was one book that really made me think differently. The Invisible Gorilla? Yeah. What personal limits are you currently stretching? What personal limits am I currently stretching? Consulting? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We're in a new industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what is the biggest life lesson you have learned in the last six months? Just do it. 
I mean, just take a leap of faith and just whatever you're trying to get into, just do it. And then this doesn't have to be rapid fire answer, but what is one piece of wisdom you would give to an 18 year old father who comes from absolutely nothing yet has high ambitions to leave a major impact on the world? For an 18 year old kid, uh, the biggest thing is, is to get your education and then, um, and get involved in something that you like doing that you know that can make a difference as well as impact those behind you. That would be my biggest thing. Because if you can make yourself better, you can make the community better, you can make your family better, and then I think, uh, and then you would have, um, you would set yourself up for some type of financial success in terms of your future. You know, that's so good. There's a particular player on my team who's very, he's dead set on wanting to be a, a dad right now. So some of the stuff I'm just gonna bring bring right to him today. So this is so good. Um, okay, Mr. Burgos, what, for the people that uh, are listening to this, what is the best way for them to reach out and or connect with you? Or where are you on social media and, and where, where can people find you? I'm on LinkedIn, so it's easily Bill Burgos. Just type in my name, Bill Burgos, uh, LinkedIn. And uh, my email address is on there, bill.burgos.cscs at gmail.com. Or, and I, I'm on Twitter as well. I guess my Twitter handle will be at bbstrong74, as well as um, my Instagram. Is B, at, at bbstrong74, and um, they can find me there. And if they have any questions, feel free to contact me anytime. And so, but yeah, man, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, this is great. I never really shared my story like that. I know it's important. I think um, there's people out there, you know, that was in the same shoes that need to hear these kind of things. And I wish I was on the other end at earlier in my life. Uh, but again, I don't. I believe there's a reason why I went through those things, and it's because to share these moments with people that need it. And so they can make a difference at an early part of their life. I agree. It's an amazing story. And being a teenage dad to what you have accomplished, it's it's absolutely inspiring. Uh, Bill Burgos, I appreciate you and uh, look forward to having you back on in the future. Hey, thanks, Coach. Talk to you soon. Man, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Bill Burgos, follow him on social media. And just an amazing story about how far one can go from being a teenage father to where he is now. And if you ask me, he's just getting started on the impact he's going to have on the world. If you found this episode at all entertaining and or helpful, hopefully both, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. What that does, it gets more ears to the podcast. The more ears we get to the podcast, the more attention we get to the podcast, the more attention we get, the more opportunity we have to get support to help inner-city athletes achieve top-flight performance maximize their potential, provide them with teaching principles, provide them with resources, provide them with all we got. So I really appreciate you. Five-star review, and I will talk to you soon.